Okay, good morning, Mercy Hill. We're studying the book of Ephesians, and we are in the last portion of this letter as Paul talks about spiritual warfare, and we're not going to study all that um, was just read, but we wanted to see the context uh, so that you get a sense of what Paul's writing about. Last week, we looked at some of Satan's schemes to accuse and tempt us. And we concentrated more on what we described as becoming aware of his schemes so that we would not be outwitted. And so we spent a lot of our time looking at the problem last week. And I promised you this week that we would begin to look at the solution. And, uh, and so we're going to do that. And, and we know that the solution is always the gospel, right? The solution is always Jesus. But that doesn't always help if we merely stop there. It's kind of like the story you heard of the Sunday school teacher who said, what has a furry tail and collects nuts and climbs trees? And the little boy said, it sure sounds like a squirrel, but it must be Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, you've heard that story. You know, sometimes we always default to Jesus, but we don't really know how that impacts our life. We know the gospel's the answer And Jesus is all that we need. But how does that fit into our everyday? And that's what Paul is getting at here. As he talks about spiritual warfare, he's going to show us how this gets at the everyday stuff of life that we struggle with. And uh, so we're going to look and see how the gospel impacts us. Because I just want to remind us, if you were here as we studied Galatians, it was probably the clearest in that book. We said it over and over and over again that the gospel is not the ABC of the Christian faith, but the gospel is the A to Z. In other words, the gospel is not simply what saves us. The scriptures would say that the gospel is saving us and that the gospel will save us. And so we see this element of past, present, and future. And so today we're going to look and see in this text how the gospel specifically is saving us. And Paul's going to use a metaphor to illustrate how the gospel protects us against the schemes of the devil. And he uses this picture of armor. And so um, I've got three points for you today as we look at just one, one small portion, the belt of truth. Just the belt of truth. So while we put on the belt of truth, which is in order to stand firm. Uh, secondly, when we put on the belt of truth, which is as often as we put our our pants on. I don't mean that in in a foolish or silly way. And third, how we put on the belt of truth, and that comes by paying attention to our hearts through our senses. So when we put on the belt of truth, or rather why we put on the belt of truth, when we put on the belt of truth, and how we put on the belt of truth. Now, don't think Knights of the Round Table here. Um, that's, That's not the right armor. Um, think back to earlier, to uh, don't think jousting, but instead think gladiator. Think, think a Roman soldier's attire. Today we're going to introduce this idea of thinking about the gospel as armor, as the armor of God. So look in verse 13. Just going to look at 13 and 14. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. 
and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. So point one, why we put on the belt of truth? And the answer is in order to stand firm. Now, I don't know if you're like me. I grew up as a kid going to vacation Bible school. Anybody, mom, ship you off to vacation Bible school for the summer? Um, And at vacation Bible school, I'm sure we learned about the armor of God. I'm sure there was some point in which we had a craft and we glued each piece of the armor on. And even if I could remember what the pieces of the armor are, honestly, as I started looking at this text, we really have no idea what they do. And um, I think that in some ways speaks to the problem that we have in what I like to describe as the religious South. Um, you know, we have all the pieces of the gospel, but we're, we, we've heard about it, some of us, since an early age. Or, or if not, if we've come to faith later, or maybe we're, you're just here and you're exploring faith and you're still uncertain of the Bible. We're so glad that you're curious and that you're here. But for any of us, we have so much information and so much access through the internet and commentaries and books to information. But I think one of the problems in the religious South is we have all this stuff. And so we think we know what we're doing, but we're really ill-equipped. Like a football player who doesn't know how to put his pads on or, or like, even more importantly, a soldier who doesn't know how to wear his armor, his or her armor. And so... Today, Paul tells us that we're going to stand firm with the belt of truth. Um, There's only two words are really this whole sermon's around. And so we need to get both those words right. (laughs) One is belt and one is truth. So let's look at belt for a minute. And uh, the Greek word that's used here actually means a leather sheath. And so I think I have a picture of Russell Crowe for you. Think, Think gladiator. Yeah. So remember, um, so it was, a th- it was like this belt was really thick, and it went over the whole body. It came all the way down, practically to the knee, which means it protected the thighs from swords and arrows, and it was underneath all the other armor. So if you can picture it, it's important to understand this definition because it's the foundation for everything. When you say, what, what is Paul meaning by the belt of truth? He's meaning it's the foundation. It was also used at times, um, many people would wear a long flowing tunic in this day, and it was used to, you could grab that and you could tuck it in. Because the last thing you want to be doing is, is fighting someone in battle, and someone grab your long flowing tunic and pull it over your head, and next thing you know, you're, you're, you're done for. And so it was used in a lot of different ways. And and then it brings us to the second word, truth, the belt of truth. It's the word althea in the Greek, which can be translated in two different ways. Um, It can mean content. So in other words, truth as opposed to falsehood, or truth as defined by the Word of God or the revelation of God. So truth can mean truth as God has revealed Or it can be defined as an attitude, an attitude of truthfulness or non-hypocrisy or sincerity or honesty or integrity or commitment. So a lot of people would say, well, which one is it? Well, as I've read it and studied this week, I don't know that it's either or, but that it may be both and. That, That we see truth 
um, as defined as truthfulness. Yes, non-hypocrisy, sincerity, but also truth as revealed by the Word of God. You know, throughout the Scriptures, we see God using this illustration of the belt. Do you think about the book of Exodus and as He commanded the people? If anybody grew up reading the King James Version, it would usually go like this in the Old Testament. This phrase, gird up your loins, which... You know, that's a good, probably a good reason why we need some new translations. Because there's like two people in the room that smiled and said, yes, I know what that means. And everybody else is like, loins? (laughs) I have no idea. So, gird up your loins. Um, As the... As the people were eating the Passover, they were commanded for their, to eat it with their belts fastened. Like, so to gird up your loins meant uh, be prepared, be ready. Usually in the Scriptures, if you read in the King James Version, gird up your loins, it was like it's about to get real. It's about to go down. Whatever it is, it's about to happen. So Jesus at one point in telling his disciples in Luke 12 about how they should be prepared for his second coming. He uses that type of phrase to be ready, to gird up your loins, to be prepared, ready for war. I think what Paul is getting at in this metaphor is he starts out with the belt of truth. I think the belt of truth really represents every other piece of armor that we see, everything else he's getting at, righteousness, peace, faith. Talks about all these various things that are specific privileges we have in Christ. But the foundation of all of it is the belt of truth. The foundation is we have to learn how to do what Paul would go on to say in Colossians 3.16. He would describe as let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What does it look like to put on the belt of truth? I think it begins with letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And so what I mean is, not just to read the Bible daily, but I mean that we would bring these things into the very center of our life so that the gospel would become the foundation, um, almost like uh, a girdle, as you see in the, in the Romans. You know, everything else would go on top, but this was, this was the core. It was the foundation. Because I want to appeal to us in, in just reminding us that we not take this foundation for granted. Because we all have access to the Word of God. And we all, you know, many of us have been taught the importance of the Word of God. We hear that over and over again. It just kind of washes over us really quickly. But I want to remind us that when we lose the truth of God, which is the Word of God, the Bible, we lose our protection. And we lose our protection when we begin to doubt His Word. And we see this happening in many churches around us. And I I don't mean just like churches across the United States. I mean many churches here in Memphis. Even even friends that I've had that um, believe in the Word of God, but over time they begin to doubt the Word of God. And things begin to change. And one of the things that I've noticed is that one of the ways in which we begin to doubt the Word of God, um, there was a big emphasis on church planting that, that began in, in the Western culture in the late 80s. 
There were churches planted before that, but it wasn't really a popular thing to do. And then in the 90s, it became pretty popular. And by like the early 2000s, it was, it was kind of the norm. And, and now it's becoming less popular again. There's very few church planters these days. Um, but one thing that's interesting, in the midst of kind of that 30-year range, we began to hear the church talk about um, engaging the culture or uh, transforming the culture or even winning the culture. And it's interesting language because all the while that the church is engaging and transforming and seeking to win the culture, we see that the church oftentimes wasn't standing on the Word of God. And so the Bible clearly speaks against things culturally that have become the tip of the iceberg that are um, really just the forefront of a conversation that goes so much deeper. Nine-tenths of the conversation is under the water. But the tip of the iceberg culturally is things that the church has grabbed hold of and said, we're going to engage and transform and win the culture. And the Word of God is very clear to say, no, that's not in alignment with God's will. For instance, um, you walk into so many churches today and a prosperity gospel is preached that the Bible very clearly doesn't teach. The Bible clearly doesn't teach that um, you give God His part and He's going to reward you financially with yours. It's not in Scripture. But culture and the church has taken man and placed us at the very center of this story and it's become all about us. Another cultural uh, debate and, and topic that is at the very for- forefront of our culture these days is abortion. And the Bible's very clear about abortion. That, um, but, but within many, even churches, we have come to a point of saying, no, we have the right to give and take life as if we are creator. Another one of those at the very tip of the iceberg that as the church has sought to engage the culture, the church would say that homosexuality is that we have a right to choose our gender at will outside of God's design. All of these things are not things that I'm, I'm picking in order to say these are um, sins that are worse than others or these are things that we should be more upset about than others. Um, No, these are things that the church, as they've sought to engage the culture, has brought to the forefront. And despite what Scripture has said, the church has said, as we engage culture, we're going to engage these issues and we're going to be okay with them. Even though the Word of God would say otherwise. It seems that many churches today believe that the belt of truth, which is God's Word, is no longer relevant to speak to these issues. And I want to remind us as I bring those issues up, um, flip over to Titus 3 for just a moment. Because I I want to be careful in in naming some of the things that I just named that, um, that we don't say, that's who we're not and that's who you are. Because look at what Titus 3, verse 3 would say. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. 
passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And Titus just reminds us we're no different. The only thing that's different is Jesus Christ's riches and grace has been poured out on us. And so we pray that for our brothers and sisters and for churches that have said we're not going to stand on the Word of God anymore. But the question becomes, what do we do? What do we do when, when, when so many Christians are seeking to engage the culture and transform the culture? Which, by the way, even though that language has become um, pretty normal, normative for us in the church... That, that language isn't found within the Scriptures. The Scriptures refer to the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And so for us to win the culture or transform the culture, that would mean that someone would step out of the kingdom of darkness and would step into the kingdom of light. And for that to happen, an individual has to say, I'm going to exchange kings. And so I'm no longer going to live for myself. I'm now going to live as a slave to Jesus, that he is my king and that he is my Lord and that I am his servant and that whatever he says, I will follow because he is a good king. And so that's what, that's what it looks like culturally. I don't want to go any further down that rabbit trail because we don't have time, but what does it look like for us to engage the culture? Or what does it look like for us when, when churches are saying all of these cultural issues are okay? What do we do? When churches across our land are seeking to no longer take on the belt of truth. Well, I think we do the same thing that we do when we fly. What do you do when you're in a plane and someone comes over that loudspeaker and says, um, folks, we're going to put the uh, seatbelts sign back on. The pilots just told us that we're going to be hitting some turbulence. And so we're going to, you know... Get away from the restrooms and go ahead and make sure. What do you do? If you've flown before, if you've ever been on an international flight and you've been in really bad turbulence before, you don't look down and make sure your seatbelt's buckled. You tighten that puppy up a little bit, right? And that's what we do in a culture in which churches are saying the belt of truth is no longer important. What do we do? We tighten it up. We tighten up the belt of truth. We stand firm in the word of God. And, and we stand firm in the gospel. Secondly, when do we put on the belt of truth? And I kind of jokingly said as often as we put on our pants, but I don't really mean that in a joking manner. Imagine a soldier, so stay, stay in the metaphor. Imagine a soldier who isn't prepared for battle. What happens to a soldier who waits for his enemies or her enemies to attack before they make certain their weapons are in working order and that their helmet and armor are in place? That type of soldier doesn't survive very long. And most Christians don't like this idea of war, but the Scriptures are clear that we are in a battle. Not a war, because the war has already been won. Uh, it seems as if Satan and his demons came against Jesus with everything they had as he walked this earth, and he met them. As they tempted him in the desert, we're going to talk more about that later on in this passage as we look at the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We're going to see how Jesus was able to fend off those temptations. 
But he met them in the desert. That battle was won. He met them at the cross. That battle was won. He met them in the resurrection and that the war has been won. And the scriptures even tell us, Psalm 24, the psalmist would say that the Lord is a warrior. He is mighty in battle. And so the battle continues for us as Christians, but the war has been won. And as we're in this battle, I said, when do we put on the belt of truth? We need to put it on as often as we put our pants on. I want to remind you of the context of of spiritual warfare once again. It's the ordinary stuff of life. This passage is rooted in the midst of Paul's teaching on marriage and parenting and work. Just ordinary stuff of life. We're not talking about head spinning. We're not talking about the exorcist. Uh, We're not talking about demonic possession in some kind of extraordinary fashion. Although some of those things do exist, but Paul in this passage is addressing spiritual warfare in the ordinary stuff of life. So, instead, we're trying to figure out what it means to put on the whole armor of God in our daily lives. In our daily lives. You know, when we think about spiritual warfare, if I just said, let's have a conversation about spiritual warfare. When do you need to be ready for that? Um, What's the context of that? I think most of us would think about some extraordinary experience that we had some time or another. And we need to be ready for those extraordinary experiences if they come. But Paul is saying, no, we need to be ready today. We need to be ready tomorrow. We need to be ready the next day. And a great place to be prepared, a great way to to begin, is what we're doing this year as a church through the CBR Journal. Uh, It stands for Community Bible Reading Journal. You say, why do you say that? Well, 2 Peter 1.3, Peter would tell us that everything we need for life and godliness we have. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Now, don't miss this. We have everything we need for life and godliness, but what's our access to it? How, do we, how, do, how does it become available to us? Through the knowledge of Him. So we have everything we need for life and godliness, but it comes through the knowledge of Jesus. How do we find the knowledge of Jesus? In the Word of God. In the Scriptures, we find His knowledge. And so... We're doing the CBR journals not because we want you to write something every day or not because we want you to check a box. We're doing the community Bible reading journals where you read a chapter from the Old Testament and a chapter from the New Testament. And there's a a plan for doing some journaling. The whole point of it is that you would meet Jesus daily so that you would have a knowledge of Him. And that when you're confronted by spiritual warfare, by Satan's lies and his attacks, that you would have a knowledge of God to be able to repel those attacks. We're going to talk about how to do that today as we end. But two quick words of caution. I meet a lot of millennials who have this idea. I don't read the Bible because when I read the Bible, I I struggle with works righteousness. I grew up in a home that was legalistic. We were taught to read the Bible. If I read the Bible, I start struggling with, am I doing this for the right reasons, for the wrong reasons? I start doing it just to check a box. It becomes meaningless. And so I don't read the Bible. Do you understand that you've exchanged legalism for license? One sin for another? They're both just as deadly. 
So, so my point is this, to say I don't really do daily Bible reading or I don't do the contemplative life because I struggle too much with legalism, so my antidote is to do nothing is just as dangerous. And so legalism or our struggle with works righteousness doesn't give us permission not to do the hard work of putting effort into our salvation. There is a distinct difference between working out our salvation with fear and trembling, which means it takes a lot of effort, and working for our salvation, which we know is a trying to earn righteousness through our works, which good luck with that. It's never going to happen. So that, the first word of caution is meet Jesus daily in his word. The second is the Bible's meant to be read in times of trouble, and that's every day. So many people coast along in life and they go to the Bible to search for answers when things feel as if they're falling apart. And they don't understand that we're in a battle that's raging around us daily. And we're losing small skirmishes daily. If you don't believe me, let's talk for just a minute about your anxiety and your impatience. Every day you have people and kids and pets that you're impatient with, that you lose your temper, you raise your voice, you lose your cool, you simply, there are some people in your life that you simply ignore, which is worse. It, it means that your impatience um, has just turned to ambivalence and that you hate someone so much that you're just going to ignore them. Or let's talk about anxiety. Anxiety is a complex psychological issue. But we're amiss if we don't also realize that anxiety is, a, is spiritual in nature. It's spiritual because it's connected to our ordinary, everyday lives. Anxiety is connected to your body, which is the place where the spiritual happens. What spiritual is not out there somewhere. To be salt. But what's spiritual is actually within us as we listen to the voice of God and as we put on the belt of truth. And so let's talk finally about how to do that. Now, I'm going to get really practical today in this last point. How we put on the belt of truth. And we do it by paying attention to our hearts through our senses. Say that again. How do we put on the belt of truth? By paying attention to our hearts through our senses. This is going to surprise many of you. But spiritual warfare isn't happening out there somewhere. We experience spiritual warfare in our bodies. Particularly in our hearts. I love this quote by Tim Keller. He says, Satan doesn't leave fang marks in the flesh. He leaves lies in the heart. Doesn't leave fang marks in the flesh. He leaves lies in the heart. And those lies produce feelings in our bodies that we need to learn to take notice. Feelings like anxiety, impatience, arrogance, anger, lust, jealousy, sadness, shame, Think about all the feels we experience on a daily basis. Have you ever had the thought, 
that those feelings are connected to your spiritual life and they're connected to spiritual warfare. Unfortunately, some of us have developed the pattern of ignoring our feelings. Now, I'm going to illustrate this for you from Scripture in a minute, just in case some of you think this sounds like psychological hocus-pocus or jumbo. And we're going to look at it in Scripture. But most of us, I would dare say, especially men, have developed this pattern of not paying attention to our feelings. Um, we've been told not to trust our feelings, and, and that can be true, that there are times where we shouldn't trust our feelings. However, however, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pay attention to them. You can't live in your feelings, but if you never pay attention to your feelings, you may never learn to truly live. If you don't pay attention to your feelings, you may never learn to truly live. Uh, I'll illustrate it from you in this way. What did we read yesterday? Psalm 6? David is crying. He's a big, fat crybaby. Did you read that? I can't even sleep at night. I'm a big crybaby. I cry all night long. David is all in his feelings. And there's something going on with his enemies. Does he have a sickness? There's something that he's asking the Lord to deliver him from. But he's all in his feelings. Now, we struggle with this idea of, but we've been taught that the flesh can be evil. We've been taught that, you know, the flesh, we war against the flesh. And so, even a hymn that we grew up singing, um, possibly, that has to do with the very passage we're studying today. Anybody grew up in a Baptist or Methodist church singing, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus? A couple, a couple are willing, like, yep, all four verses. Uh, one verse says, stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer. Where duty calls or danger, be never wanting there. Great, great lines. Great theology. Um, however, the arm of flesh will fail you. Ye dare not trust your own. That is true. While we dare not trust our flesh, however, we must pay attention to our flesh, especially when it comes to spiritual warfare, because Satan is going to attack our bodies. That's why we're being commanded to put on the armor of God on our bodies, metaphorically. Um, that means we need to listen to our bodies. And we need to pay attention to our emotions, to our senses, in order to know how we need to appropriate the gospel. In other words, what we aren't believing about the gospel, we can learn through what we're feeling. And what we need to preach to ourselves, we can learn through what we're feeling. Let me illustrate that for you. But before I do that, I just want to remind us that wearing the armor is not about trying to be like Jesus. We're going to look at each piece of this armor over the next few weeks. Wearing this armor, put on the armor of God, is not about trying to be like Jesus. That's futility. Paul is not simply urging us to be good. Wearing the armor is not about becoming enough like Christ in order to defeat Satan. No, Satan's already been defeated. It's about standing confidently in Christ's triumph, which has already taken place. 
And so wearing the armor is not about becoming like Christ enough to defeat Satan, but about staying safe in Christ's finished triumph. And our senses are one of the ways God has given us to become aware of what we aren't believing about the gospel or how we need to stand firm. I want to end with these, these two passages of Scripture. Let's talk about anxiety again. Most people who are in the room struggle with anxiety to some level. Uh, it may be debilitating at times for some. For others, it may just be kind of a constant um, kind of tension, kind of feeling of under the water. Um, for others, it comes and goes. But we all experience anxiety on some level. Now, do you remember we've been talking about the four portions of the day that if we're going to be aware of what's taking place in our hearts, of what God is doing, of how Satan is attacking us, that we need to slow down. And a great way to slow down is to look at the four portions of the day. And so that we would consider 6 a.m. to noon, noon to 6 p.m., 6 p.m. to 10 p.m., and then 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., what we call the night watches while we're sleeping. And that we would practice regularly at each of these segments of the day, pausing and just evaluating. What are my cares? What are my carnalities? What are my consolations? In other words, what's bothering me right now? What are my cares? What are my carnalities? What sin has reared its ugly head in my life just in the last six hours? What consolations? How has God been gracious to me already this day? How can I develop a, gracious, a grateful heart? So let's go back to cares. What do you do when you find yourself being anxious? You wake up in the morning with anxiety. What's the answer to that? I love Matthew 6. One of my kids struggles with anxiety, and I've highlighted Matthew 6 for him. And I love it when I see him. He'll regularly have his Bible out reading Matthew 6. And when he is reading it, I'll say, it's a great reminder for me. I think, I'm going to go back and read Matthew 6. Matthew 6 has everything to say about anxiety. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Just listen to this. I don't have it on the screen. Do not be anxious about your life. That's like the worst counseling advice you can give somebody, right? Stop it. Don't be anxious. Then stop there. Thank goodness. What you will eat or what you will drink, not about your body, what you will put on. Don't be anxious about your body. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, look how things shift. What are we to be concerned with? What are we to look at? Look at the birds of the air. I wonder if Jesus meant like, don't sit and think about it, but when you're anxious... Get up and go somewhere where you can look at the birds of the air. I wonder if he actually meant like take a walk. Because when you're anxious, one of the best things that you can do is to go get some fresh air and take a walk and just kind of like get away of your little corner that you've shuffled yourself into. Look. Consider the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. 
He goes on and talks about how Solomon even clothed as well as these are. And, and he goes on and says, Don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? The Gentiles wonder after all these things. And he, he ends by saying, Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Don't be anxious about your life. How does Jesus teach us to combat the anxiety that we face in our hearts? He says, think about your Creator. Think about the God who made you. Consider the one who holds all things together and that even when it's freezing outside, you see these little birds and they're flying around and they're warming in the sun and they're okay. You're going to be okay as well. I love the way that he ends though, but he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Isn't that odd? So we're all into our own feelings. We're all about what's going on with me. We've backed ourselves into a dark corner. We've made these small things become huge mountains in our life. And Jesus says, in the midst of your anxiety, think about the kingdom of God. Why would he say that? Because he's showing us that, yes, we do need to be concerned with our emotions and with our senses, but we shouldn't become overcome with navel-gazing. Like, life is not all about us. Life is first about the kingdom of God and his righteousness. There is a bigger picture than just our individual lives. Which, to go back to the CBR journal, is why it's a community Bible reading journal. We need to read the scriptures in community because we need community to help us to regulate as Christians in order that our circumstances don't become blinders preventing us from seeing God's larger work that's all around us. Because oftentimes, do you know what God is up to? In the things that you are most anxious about, in the greatest storms of your life, in the moments where you are filled with suffering and anxiety and impatience, and in, when you are angry at God, what we oftentimes don't understand is that those are the circumstances of our life in which God is going to use to gain His greatest glory. That those are the moments when it's the clearest that His kingdom comes and that His will is done. And so those are the moments in which we need a community around us to say, it really stinks what you're going through right now, but God really seems to be up to something. And He loves you. He really loves you. And He holds you. And He has you. I said I was going to give you two. We're about done with time. But anxiety was one. Think about impatience. Let's go back to impatience. How many of you are impatient? <laughs> How many, like we all are, okay? We all are, constantly. But we're not aware of it. We're not aware of our impatience. And it's around us all the time. And the digital age fuels it. We don't have time to talk about it. But the digital age really fuels our impatience. And here's the problem with impatience. It quickly, it's a mild form of anger. Um, but but it, it, ha it comes upon us really quickly. And I can remember one morning where I woke up impatient and it quickly turned to anger. And, and I just, in, in essence, I woke up angry and I didn't know why. It was the strangest thing. 
I, I literally told myself, I'm angry, and I don't know why. And I thought back to the night before, and I wasn't angry when I went to bed. And no one had spoken to me. <laughs> and I was angry. <laughs> and, and I began to walk through these cares and carnalities and consolations, and I became aware. You have a lunch appointment today. <laughs> You're not looking forward to that lunch appointment today. You think someone is going to accuse you of something unfairly. And, and you are angry at this person. And I just began to give that to the Lord. I was angry and I didn't even realize it. And the amazing thing uh, about the lunch appointment was that it went so much better than I thought it would. And it was actually no problem at all. What does it look like for us to consider our emotions, which are rooted in our bodies, which is the place where Satan is mainly going to attack us. And as we put on the armor of God, as we take the gospel, these truths about Jesus' life, what does it look like for us to actually appropriate those to our feelings, to what we are experiencing? And to know that Jesus is with us in the midst of our experiences. Every single emotion that you frown upon, that you hope never comes into your heart and life, that you feel ashamed of, Jesus has experienced. He's walked with us. He's been in your shoes. And he was able to appropriate the gospel to each of those experiences. And he was able to win. And he tells us that as we take on the belt of truth, that we can dispel Satan's lies and that we too can walk in truth. Let's pray together. Father, may you help us in our ordinary lives, God, to know that um, your yoke is easy and your burden is light. God, help us to know that as we put on the belt of truth, that you'll give us um, what we need to be reminded of in order um, to win the battle. Um, God, thank you that even when we lose the battle, that we are reminded that Jesus has won the war. And so we can stand firmly, not in our identity, but in Jesus's. And know that we're dearly loved. God, help us to, to fight well. And God, help us to give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.